You're listening to the World Rugby Podcast. I'm Sean Maloney, and this is our next episode of Inside the 22, where we catch up with the big names, the biggest names in World Rugby, and our next guest, well, they don't come much huger than Brian Habana, the former Springbok flyer, over 100 test matches with South Africa, a try-scoring machine, super rugby titles, and I don't mind saying it, one of the nicest men you'll ever meet. Truly a great fella, a wonderful footballer, and I was lucky enough to catch him at the recently completed Sydney Sevens in and amongst the craziness at Parramatta Stadium. Here is Brian Habana on Inside the 22. How much are you loving Sydney, Brian Habana? I'm loving it a lot more on day two where there a little bit more cloud cover, a bit of rain, because yesterday it was the hottest was, day in world rugby. It was the hottest day that in world rugby. One, I Sydney don't sevens. think there's ever been a hotter day in the 15 or 7 man format or women format of the game. Would have been a good day at the beach. It would have been a good day, like potentially Friday instead of Friday teaching me to surf on Saturday in the water, Sean Maloney. You're push a world-class Can teacher. we just talk about... No, we need to talk about that because we'd, we'd spoken about you coming out and having a surf when you came to town. And it's weird the way that the universe spins, that we should go to this gorgeous little beach, freshwater beach on Sydney's northern beaches, and then randomly... Lane Beachley, seven-time world champion, is in the water with us. What are the odds on that? I am so thankful that you were our teacher that day because between myself and Rob Vickerman, we would have had no clue who Lane Beachley was. <laughs> I was like, who's this random middle-aged she's woman lucky. giving me advice? And she just looks like she's been in the sun too much. And I think your drool coming down your left lip was um, definitely telling but me a different like story. she's like an Aussie icon. I didn't know that. I know you do now, though. I do now, though. Uh, she hasn't friended me on Instagram yet, which is... I, I think I think she's just going to check in on Instagram and Twitter both and just go, what are these notifications? What have I done? Who were these Muppets? I don't know. Like, When does one stop? I've like done it like seven times in the last three days. Do you think it's going to... How about I'll just get her phone number for you? That no, would be, be hard awkward, to find. No, that would be awkward. It would be weird now, no, wouldn't that'd it? That would be very awkward. Um, but if, it was amazing. I think, it was yeah, a good again, day. Like, you, you're a good teacher, but some of her... Pretty basic tidbits of advice yeah. was, was really cool. And it actually got me standing up towards the end, which was really cool. And she, again, you make it look easy, but she makes it look effortless. Uh, she was ridiculous. I was amazed at how competitive you were against <laughs> yourself towards the back end of that. You didn't want to let it go. No, I didn't want to let it go. Um, I'm, I'm a bit bummed the waves weren't extremely powerful. Next time. Next time. Um, but one thing that I'll give those Queen Cliff Beach definitely a lot more credit for is that it is so much warmer yeah. In the freezing <laughs> temperatures that is Cape Town's beaches. No matter where you go. Cape Town uh, is ice. Cape Town is worse than ice. Um, Cape Town could might as well be like Antarctica if you get into that water. It's about this cold. Yeah, I can see you making a, <laughs> like a, couple, a couple of centimetres. chilly. A couple of millimetres. It's chilly. Uh, tell me this. If you weren't to be a rugby player, ghost going off how competitive you were against yourself the other day, what do you think you would have done in the sports field? Oh, I'd love to say I'd be a golfer, but I'm so pathetic at golf. Uh, you know, everyone like, and you chat to guys like, you know, Ed Jenkins, who's, who's not too bad. You know, some of the other guys on, on the circuit, someone like Veri Dupree, who's almost sort of scratch at the moment. Mm. And they can like tell you exactly where they're going wrong, what they're doing wrong. Skulk Brits and Absolute Golf Nut will like tell you exactly what you're doing wrong. I have no idea, like from one shot to the next, why the one's good and the other one is extremely horrible. Part of the ride. But is there anything worse than someone who's way better than you correcting you as well? Well, 
bar the fact that uh, I was fortunate enough to play with you know Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy, Jason Day, and Hideki Machiyama in Japan. We've last got year. to get into that a little bit more because we'll that at, is a hell of a but story. Just on the advice thing, so I got to play in the Gary Play Invitational for the first time ever in the South Black Africa. Prince. The Black Prince, and I've, they've been asking me for about the last seven years, and you know purely just because of the rugby schedule, mm. you have never been able to. And then I finally managed to organise to go up to Sun City to play in what is a really prestigious event. And you know, again, you know, from a charity and give back perspective, they've raised millions upon millions of dollars you know, for you know, a lot of un- unwell kids and un- underprivileged kids in South Africa. And sort of get there and the tournament organizer says to me on the practice day that you know, we're playing with a few you know, local business people. He says to me, Brian, I've got some news for you. I'm like, yeah, cool. I'm, I, I'm pretty chilled with him. He goes, now you're going to be playing with Mr. Player over the next two days. I literally just felt like the earth wanting to open up and swallow me whole. I'm like, well, firstly, you don't need that. I don't need that. Like, I don't. As pathetic as my golf is at the moment, I really just want. I don't want to be feeling constant pressure. And Gary Player, as much as I love him, he doesn't shy away from giving advice. And day one. I think he gave advice for like 19 holes. I was that desperate. <laughs> I could have actually... Even in the clubhouse, you know, <laughs> you're ordering the wrong drink, Brian. <laughs> in fairness, I actually think the Proteas would have needed me as an opening batsman. Right. Um, you know, just raising my century and lifting my bat. Yeah. But um, things went much better on day two and it was a lot more complimentary right. um, on, on day two and it, it did become a bit easier. So, yeah, it's not always ideal getting advice from people who can play the game but when you get someone that's an absolute legend of the sport you probably tend to listen a bit more than not but um, so who gave you advice or was there any was there time to be advice offered up when you played in that match play hole at the world <laughs> cup last year so go through the, the golfers names again tiger so, uh, tiger words which obviously like it's a dream i think just that opportunity just i was like this is surreal it surely yes. can't be happening we had tiger teaming up with mike yeah. Um, the yeah, World Cup winning England player. Then you had Rory McIlroy and Brian O'Driscoll mm. teaming up. You had Jason Day, who's an absolute hilarious golfer um, to, to be around. He just made it so, so casual and, and enjoyable. And then I teamed up with Hideki Matsuyama, um, whose English is very limiting. Mm. And uh, obviously, so I think for me, just knowing the opportunity that you're going to be playing a hole of golf thank goodness it was only a hole for me because if they had potentially seen me for more than that hole they would have probably given up supporting rugby because it would have been pathetic but I sort of was literally having sleepless nights for about two weeks leading into that because this is big pressure you know what it's not the pressure of being next to those guys because that's not your sport so if I asked them to pass the rugby ball you know they probably wouldn't be able to my thing was hitting a ball in front of 3,000 people that's what I'm thinking <laughs> but not just the 3,000 there it's everyone oh, filming it and the fact that it's being broadcast broadcast globally so I'm literally standing on the practice tee um, 10 minutes before this spewing my balls <laughs> left, right, centre Mike Tindall George Gregan and Brian Driscoll are because Greggs is a decent golfer Greggs is a decent golfer Tins is off a single handicap and, and Drico is an incredible golfer also a single digit handicap I'm the only one you know batting double figures probably should be triple figures not just double and I'm spewing them left, right not even 10 metres in front of me like literally 10 minutes before this hole and you sort of get there and I, and I made a joke you know, as I was about to approach my tee shot for all the people just to move a little bit away yeah. and like everyone started laughing and I was like <laughs> no seriously I'm being serious <laughs> you don't want to be standing anywhere in front of me and I then proceeded to actually hit a pretty decent shot yeah um, it was a par 3 wasn't it it was a par 3 uh, the 7th hole and it actually went pretty good we then it was a sort of American scramble so it mm. chose the best ball 
I was just so happy that my shot went off the ground. Hideki wasn't much of a communicator, so yeah. it was sort of a bit of a push. But the, all the you know, all the guys were really having great banter between them. Tiger and George from the Masters back yeah. in I think 2010 when he caddied for that's right for Michael uh, Mike Campbell. Campbell, and then you know Rory and Rory and, and um, Brian obviously from the Irish connection know each other well, and you know Jason and you know George also got on you know really fantastic. So we're walking up there, and Hideki says, you know, I need to putt. We were the furthest from the hole, and I was like, oh man, this is not going to be happening. So I hadn't really putt beforehand. I was spewing my balls on the yeah. tree. I wasn't worrying about putting because I didn't think I'd need to putt on a par three because he'd probably get a lot closer than me. Um, so I putt my putt, and I'm a very average putt. I don't even get halfway to the hole. feel like an you know, absolute sissy because it didn't go all the way. Hideki continues to sink an absolute monster of a So you've putt. taken your tee shot. So I've taken my tee shot. We choose his ball because his ball right. was closest okay. to or the best lie. And I go first in my putt leave it yeah. way short Hideki proceeds to sink an absolute monster of a left to right break yeah. birdie yeah. and obviously there was like a charity thing on the go so if you win the hole you get to donate to your charity and in my elation and acting a little bit like a kid not realising that golfers are very fine tuned athletes and nothing can literally put their body out of sync because mm. it could not only yes. affect them for that day but for mm. the preceding yeah. couple of weeks, yeah. months or years and in my elation of him sinking this putt knowing what it meant I sort of start jumping towards Hideki and sort of mid-air I realise how big this guy's eyes are looking <laughs> at a 100 kilogram former rugby player <laughs> approaching him and mid- mid-air you can't do anything no, you, can you can't even you can't even pull yourself back you can't even like Stop doing and I jump on him and the photos of that happening, it literally I don't think he knew what happened. And then on the next T box Tiger says to Jason Day, Yeah man, if that guy jumped on my back, my back would have broken. <laughs> <laughs> but it was absolute cost. And I think, you know, you, you it's things you, you dream of. You know, George yeah. got the opportunity to get to the Masters in two thousand ten and to be in that environment with those guys making it look just so easy it was absolutely spectacular yeah nice one and who were some of the other sports people obviously with your time in uh, rugby with countless first class games that you played other sports people that you've crossed paths with as well especially at Toulon I'm guessing that would have opened up a lot of different doors yeah, for everyone there Toulon did open up quite a few doors but I think for me in particular being a Laureus ambassador um, has been a real, real joy. Not in the fact that you get to give back on so many different platforms and get given that vehicle to do it. We, in 2008, after winning the World Cup in 2007, got nominated as one of the teams of the year. And we got to go to St. Petersburg in, in Russia. And obviously, as a sportsman, you have heroes. And we had the likes of Roger Federer, Tony Hawk, Nadia Comaneci, you know, the first woman to ever get a perfect 10. Um, we had the Klitschko brothers. Uh, it was just like it was sporting royalty to the nth degree. Lou, a young Lewis Hamilton. Um, you know, we had Kim Cattrall from Sex in the City you know, parading around in <laughs> a very skimpily clad <laughs> dress that made everyone's eyes sit up. Um, and I think being at that opportunity and getting involved in you know, posts that I've been able to go to quite a few Loris yeah, awards. Yes, so can you explain to me what Loris is about? So is that actually an organisation that channels everything to charity using sports as a vehicle to do it? So Loris was created back in two, or started back in 2000 uh, by a couple of South Africans actually with the thought of bringing together some of the world's best athletes across all sporting codes 
to use them as a platform to use sport for change for the better. Um, and they had Nelson Mandela as their patron initially, and you know he walked into this room with the likes of a oh man, Sean Fitzpatrick, Mark War, um, Nadia Steve Cominetti, was involved as well. Steve I think was the cricketer. Involved. You know, there's just so many like absolute legends. There was like I think initially the first group was like 26 or 27 people. And the story goes that they were discussing how they're going to use sport as a medium to change the world for the better. And you have these sporting icons. And, you know, Sean Fitzpatrick tells a story about, you know, they're all, like, really excited and getting into it. And all of a sudden, Nelson Mandela, you know, the icon that is the Madiba Magic, walks into that room. And, you know, these sports stars' jaws just drop on the floor. You had Edwin Moses, you know, phenomenal, phenomenal athletes. And Nelson walks in there and tells them that, they need to use sport as a driving tool for change globally, um, using what they know to make things better, to make hope uh, inspire a world that was nothing. And you know that just grew into an organization. Now I think it's got more than 280-odd ambassadors globally. I think there's 74 or 75 Academy members. So you sort of have the Academy members that are your elite, elite you know, sporting legends, and then your ambassadors that... You know, get to do things in their specific countries and you know they use their funds to channel into various different projects around the world in every different type of sporting code charity work and they're doing phenomenal work and for them they're using sport as a driving tool they have the laureate sports awards which is almost like the the oscars of sports but that's more just the glitz and glams one off it's, it's not really what their actual organization is about and again for me being able to see especially in south africa particularly in 95 when I got inspired to pick up the game of rugby, you know, how sport can be used for the better, to instill hope and be a tool for driving change. Um, it was, was absolutely phenomenal. Then as a sportsman, get involved in various projects during your career to see what hope and inspiration it brings to kids getting a little bit of advice or just a little bit of glimmer from their heroes, um, whether that be soccer, football, you know, athletics, tennis, whatever it might be. So, you know, grateful for that that vehicle that is the Laureus um, Academy. I love the synergy that you talk around about 95 being the Kickstarter for you, giving you the hope and inspiration. And then 2007 where you play and you win the World Cup and you're the World Rugby Player of the Year, then being the catalyst and the Kickstarter for the most recent South African World Cup win. That synergy and that cohesion and that it's spaced out so perfectly. I mean, it was all coming together in Yokohama last year. you gotta, you got to take me back because we spent time down on the pitch post-game and you were really emotional about the whole <laughs> yeah. thing. I was incredibly emotional and not only on that day, you know, in, in the week leading up to that final and, you know, just chatting more about, you know, the Sia Khaleesi story and, and how monumental that was from a South African perspective in terms of where he'd come from in terms of where this team had come from 18 months prior, what they've had to overcome, see a person in his personal capacity, but the team more so that you know, 18 months prior, they were you know, in the doldrums of you know, world rugby. They were struggling to get any results. They'd gone on and started getting a few. They were going facing a challenge of being the only team to have lost the World Cup game and try to win win it. The first team ever to win a rugby championship or Tri-Nations to then win it. Um, so there was all these things stacked against them, and I think the reason I got emotional, you know, first and foremost, and I tell the story that, you know, for me growing up as a, as a young in South Africa, I was pretty fortunate. I wouldn't say I was extremely privileged, but I was more privileged than your average player of colour, and you know, got an opportunity to go to some really good schools, go to university, had 
incredible support from my family. You know, when I chose to be a rugby player, they said, okay, well, you're going to have to work hard and you have to sacrifice and dedicate yourself, but we will support you. And whether that had been in rugby, soccer, as, as a youngster, I had that type of support. And all of a sudden, you know, you emotionally try, because it's always difficult to comprehend, you try to put yourself in someone like Sia Khaleesi's shoes, who, you know, growing up where I was probably worrying about asking my dad what type of rugby boot to buy for me, or when is he going to buy me my first cell phone when those BlackBerry flip open phones first came Nokia. out? Nokia, <laughs> you played some Snake on the Nokia. Oh, Snake, Old the school. 3310, <laughs> what a winner. You didn't have to charge it for like three weeks. Um, and you, and your, your effort on the Snake was to get that Snake on the full outside yeah. circle and make sure that you get right. I, I think I got it right about two or three times. Um, with Nokia 3310, Pure. where are those things? Um, they need so to be recycled. So. Yeah, they do. So, so you, were, you were wondering about that and yeah. see you on the flip side to so that. Is yeah, nowhere near that. So, you know, first of all, his mom gave birth to him when he was four, when she was 14 years old. Um, she really? Then, I think it's 14 or 15 yeah, years wow. old. Yeah, wow, okay. As a you teenager. Know, as a teenager. You know, his dad, you know, had a bit of alcohol abuse. So, you know, he was also a bit of a missing action. So, Sia got brought up by his grandmother, who, again, you know, didn't really have much. Um, and where I was worrying and like saying, when am I going to get my next cell phone? Or dad send me to this school, send me to this university. You know, Sia was worrying about, you know, where his next meal was coming from. And just to try, not put it into perspective, but to try even imagine what that's like, that you go to bed hungry at night and your very, very basic school education system that you go to, you're not worried about the education. You're worried about getting that peanut butter and jam yeah. bread that needs to then, you know, suffice for the full day. <laughs> I mean, and I got emotional in the week and I think, you know, then I got to embrace Sia post that game. And you say in 2007, we were the inspiration. Sia had to go watch the World Cup final in a Shabin, which is like a a local, you know, pub type that's mm. very basic in, in the rural township. Because his grandmother couldn't afford a TV. So this guy was, you know, as a you know, 12 or 13-year-old, he was watching rugby, um, you know, in, a, in an environment probably unsafe, unsecure, um, but he was getting inspired to take up the game. And yes, he got supported to go to a good school, you know, he got taken in the system, but he had to overcome so much and, you know, build his way into that leadership role. He then becomes the first ever black African to captain South Africa to then go on and win a World Cup. You know, he's He's shot through so many different stratospheres in terms of not only popularity, but in terms of what he's perceived to be in the outside world. Yes, because of his rugby playing ability, but because of his humility. And I think that's something that people have just gravitated towards in incredible fashion because he has been so brilliant at it. How's life changed for him back in South Africa? Jeez, back in South Africa, globally, you're talking about it. He's just signed up with Jay-Z's... Sports sports agency called Jay Z the the rapper Jay Z Jay Z the rapper you know the first African to sign up to this global organization um, he can't lift a leg or blink an eyelid without being bothered in South Africa really for it he's inundated you know I think his his Instagram following went up by three four hundred thousand okay um, you know in the course of that three so he's period. not just nipping down at the oh, local no. for a, for well, a cap, strong and, cappuccino oh, no half he's, sugar. He's probably doing Uber Eats every day, um, to, to be brutally honest. That is not a punt. I also do Uber Eats. I'm not sponsored by them. But, you know, and, and I think it's all worthwhile. And, and in a way, you know, you sort of feel for him because Sia's never taken credit for this Rugby World Cup win. He's in every interview, in every speech, in every communication that you hear from him. He's saying, you know, I was just a custodian of the position. I was just a custodian of the jersey. Without the team around me, without Rassi and you know his thinking, and without the management staff, without everyone on my journey, nothing of like that would have ever been possible. And I think that's something that people are so so 
incredibly admiring about CS position is he's not now all of a sudden head in the clouds, not thinking that he's better than everyone um, and just you know making himself unknown. But he's literally going out there. He's making a difference. His philanthropic work is phenomenal. I think they, the guy that put him through as a bursary in school is is a South African now living in America. See, I went to go see him, you know, last year, and they have now come up with a plan to build a hundred fields, sports fields in and around you know poverty-stricken areas in South Africa. And you know, long may that journey continue. Um, you look at Sia, the likes of a Makazoli Mapimpi, You know, we'd have to walk ten kilometers every day to get to and from school. Um, Lukanyo Am, you know, Herschel Yankis, you know, you look at all these guys who are putting their hand up and saying that, you know, if you put your differences aside, if you work incredibly hard and together as a team you strive for greatness, some amazing things can be achieved. And I got emotional that week because you know that story. You know, I was on that field when he made his debut in 2013 against Scotland in Nalspread. You know, Ten minutes in, Arne Buerta got injured. You know, Sia came on, which then put in a man-of-the-match performance in your t- test debut. It's, it's incredible to then go on that journey where, you know, yes, the highs and the lows, but to be at that pinnacle at that specific moment in time, knowing the hope and inspiration that it causes, not only in South Africa, but globally, has been phenomenal. One more on Khaleesi. Why is he known as the bear where that nickname come from Ooh, where did that nickname come from the it just kind of works doesn't it it does work um i actually don't know where it comes from i haven't no that's a very good question i actually haven't he's just the he bear probably, getting he it probably, done he probably has told me before um i'm not going to blame concussion concussion throughout my career of why not. i forgot I'll get back well, to that. There's a few other reasons. That'll be, that'll be, that that'll can be part two. Of po- our, podcast part two, 2021. Part two. Uh, British and Irish Lions in South Africa. We'll see you there. Yeah, no, we'll def- I'll definitely be there. Look, I need to let you get back to your work as an HSBC ambassador uh, at the moment. But we've just, we've just rattled through 20 minutes and we haven't really touched on any of your rugby stuff. So how about we set some time aside for Hong Kong? Ooh, Hong Kong's pretty busy. Singapore. Oh, Singapore. Let's do Singapore. I think Singapore's a, a good thing. Singapore's my first ever Singapore Sevens. We'll grab um, a sling and away we'll, we go. We will grab a sling or maybe a. will pull up one of the Lilo's at that, what's that hotel that overlooks the, the sands? Marina Bay it's, Sands. It's Marina Bay yeah, Sands. Yeah, we can do it there. Uh, and then, we, can, um, but then probably, we need to do a deep dive on you and your footy. Yeah, me and my footy. So retired now, just just on a year and a half. Um, the transition has been great, you know, doing gigs like the HBC yeah, Ambassador. Kill, you are absolutely some, killing some it. TV. Apparently, I'm not that good a commentator. No, you as, are very, um, you're killing it. I'll say it again, <laughs> you're killing it. Um, and we love having you at these events and love having you here on the World Rugby Podcast. So it'll be Singapore next up with Singapore Brian Singapore next, part two. Sean Maloney, what a legend. Yeah, how good to check in with Brian Havana. And as you mentioned there, there is every chance in the world that when we get back to the normal running of things, that we will have him back on the World Rugby Podcast. He really does love it. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Next week, it's another South African, a guy that is so well-traveled, 69 test matches as a referee, including a couple of World Cups, I'm talking about Craig Joubert. When we speak of nice guys like Habana, well, Craig Joubert follows sweet perfectly. That's next time on Inside the 22.